right. Um, welcome, everybody. Thank you for tuning in. Today, I am honored to talk with Mr. Lyle McDonald. He has been on the podcast a couple of times, and we will have some cool topics to discuss today as well. And uh, yeah, Lyle, thank you for being on. How are you? Uh, I'm good. Thank you for having me. If my voice sounds a little bit raw, I uh, stayed out too late singing karaoke last night, so I'll do my best. Yeah. What were you singing? Oh, good grief. What did I do last night? Did a lot of hip hop, Vanilla Ice, Jump Around by House of Pain, uh, warmed up with Safety Dance by Men Without Hats. Good grief, what else did I sing? It was a busy night, so I've forgotten a lot of it. Did a duet on Hoobastank's Reason with somebody that wanted to sing with me, so yeah, it was a good night. Yeah, uh, I love karaoke. Unfortunately, there isn't any good places nearby, but um, I'm already making some arrangements that on my wedding, I'm going to be singing, nice. and then I can skip the dancing. Uh, perfect. Yeah, my one of my the karaoke host at this show is actually a good friend of mine, and she's been doing this for several years. So I kind of I go roadie for her. I go help her set up with the equipment, and then I get to sing. And she's actually also does wedding DJ gigs. So yeah, karaoke karaoke weddings sound perfect. And you can just sing the songs rather than have them play them. Yeah, exactly. And uh, then I have a complete excuse to not hit the dance floor. So every everybody wins. Perfect. Um. Yeah. So. We will discuss a couple of topics today, I hope, um, but before we jump into any of that, um, there is something which we will not get into too much because that's not really in my wheelhouse and uh, not that relevant for my audience in general that is predominantly guys, but okay. there are some coaches and fitness professionals that are listening to this, so they might be interested that you have been uh, working on a book uh, recently. Um, do you want to say something about that? Sure. So I'm sure most most people listening to this know I, I released the big women's book, Volume 1, uh, last year. And while I should be working on Volume 2, it's kind of overwhelming. I'm a little bit tired. So about a month ago, I decided it'd be easier to write a smaller booklet. So I addressed a question that comes up a lot by females, which is how will birth control affect you know my body weight, my body fat, my dieting, my athletic performance? Um, it's a topic about which not a lot has been written, and unfortunately, a lot of the data is either missing or just the research is terrible. Um, but I tried to put together sort of a, a comprehensive little booklet just addressing uh, that issue and, and what data was out there, and there's recommendations, and I made sure to keep myself very brief. Um, I, <laughs> I should do this more often, actually. I told myself that no chapter would be more than five pages. And that forced me to keep things a little bit shorter than they otherwise would. So it's like 50 pages. It's very applied. It's got references for people who want to look into it. So, you know, if you're working with female athletes or just a general trainee and, and they want to know, you know, the answers to these questions, because I'm any any male coaches you've got, if you have female clients, I know you get asked this. Um, it's especially the body weight, body fat issue. So that's all in there. Um, so, yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Uh, so yeah, people can keep an eye out for that. And, um, now we will get into some, uh, some sweet topics. Uh, the, the main, there was one in particular that was voted by the audience of my Facebook group. So, uh, we will touch on that in a second. But the first thing I want to ask you about is, a uh, is, is, a <laughs> a recent Facebook discussion that I was the witness of, and that was on, 
I think it was Eric Lee Salazar, I hope I'm pronouncing his name oh, correctly, yeah. who uh, mentioned something about the long-term bodybuilding journey and how you can push your body to the limits within yes. in 20 years or something. And you had a kind of a, a snarky but very cool comment under that. And uh, I wonder if we could get into a bit of a discussion over that. Well, yeah, and that, that had come up in a, a, a podcast I had done like the week before and, and a guy named Dave McConey, yeah. who, um, you know, he said he had a buddy and somebody asked him, you know, how did you get to look like that? And I was like 30 years of hard training, which I think is a little bit like, it sounds super hardcore, but I think if you really asked that, that gentleman said, okay, when did you stop growing? And he probably would have said somewhere between the four and five year mark, right? It wasn't 30 years of training to get to that end point. It was three to five years of, you know, of effective, proper training, consistent training to get to that end point, And then 25 years of maintenance. And I think it's really disingenuous to put it in those. And Eric Salazar, who I like a lot, do not mishear me. I, I like him a lot. Um, you know, said the same thing as like, oh yeah, this, you know, this is 20 years of hard training. And I'm like, right. How much growth have you actually gotten in the last 15 years? Ounces, right? Half a pound? Like, yeah, I get it. You can keep adding, you know, and someone brought up uh, something about uh, why do you know young guys win World Cups? And my response was, I thought we were talking about sports. Um, I, I didn't realize we were talking about sports because I'm like, okay. Um, I mean, yes, you hear about things like muscle density and symmetry. I think more guys learn how to diet, especially in the modern era where bodybuilding is a dieting contest. But realistically, if you're training consistently and effectively, you are going to get most of the gains you're ever going to get in, say, three to five years. Maybe, you know, a fine, I'll, I'll be generous. Let's say it takes five, right? And if you look at other people who aren't me, they will give you the same guidelines, right? Look at Alan Aragon or Eric Helms' guidelines for, like, weight gain and, and how much muscle you can gain. First year, you might gain, you know, pound and a half to two pounds a month as a male. Second year, you might gain a pound a month. Third year, you might gain half a pound a month, which means by the fourth year, maybe you're gaining a quarter of a pound a month. This is three pounds a year. And then your final year, you're going to gain one, right? These, these top-level bodybuilders scrape and claw to get a pound of gain after they've been doing this for five or four or five years. So don't tell me that it takes you 20 years to get your genetic potential. And this is true in every sport. You look at any physiological process, you get mo you're going to get to most of where you're going to get after three or four years. Again, I'm assuming productive training, proper training, et cetera, et cetera. Like I'm not saying you goofed off like most people for a decade, right? And then got figured out what you were doing. This is the, the, the effective period of training, right? In endurance sports, your VO2 max doesn't go up any. That your efficiency gets better, like all like performance keeps improving incrementally, right? Sprintals will work after they get to their, their limits. They'll work for a year to take hundreds off their time. And people go, well, they're still making gains. Yeah, and you need to look at what an asymptote is, right? You have reached 99% of your gains at that mark. The incremental amount you're going to be making from that point on is not even worth caring about, right? As I put it in an article, like you are pissing against the wind at this point. And by the time you get to your 30s and 40s, you are just fighting the decrepitude of age, right? Now you are just fighting to not lose ground. So to say, oh, I got here, it took me, this is 20 years of hard training. No, it was five years of proper training and 15 years of maintenance. And my problem with that as a statement is somebody comes to me and goes, all right, I want to get buffed. If I go, it'll take you 20 years, 
They quit. That's absurd to tell them that it's going to take them 20 years to get to that point. Uh-uh. And I guarantee, and I said this in the thread, I go, look, if somebody came to me and had never trained, 18, they're post-puberty, got it together, whatever, 20, whatever their age, you let me train them properly for three to five years, the progression I would use, that's it. They're not getting significant, significantly bigger after that. They may bring up some weak points, whatever, whatever, if they've got the genetics. They're competing to learn how to diet, but that's it. Short of at that point, the only thing that's going to get you bigger is steroids. And people don't want to hear that because they want to think they can keep growing. If you still don't believe me about this, this genetic limit thing, go to a natural bodybuilding contest and see what the biggest weight classes are. It's about 165 pounds. We're talking 75 to maybe 80 kilos, right? These are guys that trained their whole lives, that have good genetics. They don't get any bigger than that. So don't tell me that training for the next 20 years or 10 years, they're making, because if, if anybody were going to do it, it'd be them. And the guys that are in the heavier classes started out heavier. Yeah, and 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 I think um, what what you said that hearing for people to hear that it will take them twenty years is discouraging. But at the same time, I think it it almost creates this delusional idea for some people that you know the the classic story of um, someone is asking another person who has an amazing physique like uh, so how long have you been training? And the implicit question behind the actual question they asked is how long will it take for me to look like you? And to that, the answer right. is, well, you have, if you have the genetics, you will get yeah. pretty close after five, three, five years. And if you don't have sure. the genetics, never. Yeah, yes. Yeah. So and, and almost bodybuilding more so than I think any other activity. It is the one, I mean, all sports genetics are important, but bodybuilding, if you don't have the muscle bellies, if you don't have the androgen receptor density, and I'm not even talking about steroid users, I'm just talking about the physiology in general right? You're never going to get there, right? If you've got a long bicep tendon, you are never going to, now you may be, you know, guys say, oh, you just learn to compensate and learn how to pose. That's fine. But you're probably still never get, those guys are the top 1% or 5% of genetics and bodybuilding, I think more so than any other sport, that's a determining factor. Um, especially, again, we're talking, we're talking about co competitive levels at the higher levels, right? You can get through the lower ranks without great genetics. But at the top ranks, you got to have the whole package. You got to have the symmetry. You got to have the muscle bellies. You got to have everything because everybody else has it. And if you don't, you can't get anywhere with it. But yeah, telling the average beginner, this is going to take you 20 years, it's, it is. It's destructive. It's disingenuous. And I get it. It sounds hardcore. Yeah, bro. I'm training my ass off for 20 years. Yeah. And again, tell me how much progress you've made in the last 15. Now, yeah, you take the average 22 year old guy from the time he was 15 to 22. He probably trained like, a, you know, he didn't train well. I didn't. You didn't. I'm not saying I'm any better than this. So yeah, those first seven years after, you know, probably didn't count for much, but then given to me for three years of productive training and yeah, that's about it. Everything else is going to be so microscopic and you see it in powerlifting. You see it in every sport. You hit your, you know, you're close to your top pretty quickly, you know, and then you're working your butt off for 16 months, 16 weeks to put that next five pounds on your bench. You know, if you're not already benching, like if you're not squatting, if you're squatting 500 at the end of three years, I got bad news for you. You're never going to squat a thousand. I don't care how long you train because you may be adding 15 pounds to your squat every year. <laughs> you're not going to get there um, without 
a lot of the systems. Yeah, and and what's testament to that is that when you are actually looking at the physiques of these people that look crazy impressive and say that, well, I've been training for 15, 20 years, if you dig up pictures of them at the beginning of their training career, like of, of, oftentimes they will look pretty darn similar to how they look like now. Like, like you said, there might be some legging muscle grooves they brought up or some muscle density or this and that, but for the most part, they already had the foundation. So yeah, they're just kind of bigger versions of the self. One of, you know, years ago, you don't see it quite as much. There's this whole, Oh, you know, who'd you rather look like a sprinter or a marathoner? And invariably they held up, you know, the physiques of African-American sprinters, to white marathoners and that gets into a whole separate issue of genetics there is an ethnic component of that but if you look at like ben johnson right 1984 world record if you're old you don't know what i'm talking about he he was buffed and jacked there are pictures of him when he was 15 he was buffed and jacked he just became a slightly bigger version of himself over and, and it was in the weight room right it's because it wasn't because he was a sprint he was sprinting per se it was because they lifted a lot they were also taking well amounts of anabolics but yeah it wasn't that he t went from being this skinny and again this is after puberty right people love to bring that out oh i knew a guy that gained 40 pounds during high school yeah he hit puberty right i'm not talking about puberty gains puberty is an is just a natural steroid cycle i'm not talking about taking a 120 pound underweight kid who doesn't eat and putting him in the weight room and feeding him, right? I'm talking about taking an adult male after pubertal growth, going, all right, I'm going to train your butt off in the gym. That's it. Three, you know, again, we can refine stuff. We can bring up weak points. I had a training partner years ago. He'd been training 15 years. He was a pro, you know, he's a pro bodybuilder, natural. And, um, but he had weak hamstrings just because he was such a squat monster. He didn't train them that well. So we did, we did a specialization cycle for a year. No joke, a year of squats. And they grew, but it's because they had not reached their upper limit by that point because he had sort of neglected them over the years. And once we brought that up, that was it. And then he became a fisherman. So that was the end of his career. No joke, he became a bass fisherman. So. And just to reiterate one one point is that, um, or actually two two important things that um, is is important to conclude from this. One is that oftentimes in practice, like you mentioned, it does end up taking like 10 years for many people to actually get to that point simply because of all the inefficiencies that you have in your training. The first one or two years oftentimes end up just doing random stuff. You're still figuring things out. You have to be pretty damn lucky to actually know from the get-go what you're doing. And then also like the chronic dieting and all those silly things that people do and yeah oh yeah at one point someone brought this up we had sort of this discussion in in my facebook group that is worth considering right we are assuming proper progressive effective consistent training and for most people life gets in the way right you will have a good five or six months and then you'll get derailed and job or family or school or whatever requirements and you may lose right so so when i say this three to five years this is not this is like you can train five years and still be a relative beginner you can train five years of which half of that you are really making progress because your life allowed it. And if you're lucky, you know, and you have start right and are able to be consistent for five years, you might end up in a different situation. Like my training partner, again, he started in high school. His dad was coaching him and his brother. I mean, they were young, so they just did a lot. But um, I, by the time he got to his 20s, he was probably about as big as he was going to get. You know, he brought up some weak points and more of it, it 
really was just like learning how to diet without muscle loss. And that takes a lot of experience. That I, I genuinely, when these people are like, oh yeah, I'm coming into contests bigger than before, right, you're not dieting as badly as you were when you were younger. You've learned how to diet for yourself, especially for modern conditioning requirements. When you have to find a way to get to striated glutes and dried out without losing muscle mass, that can take years to figure out. But that's sort of, that's only a competitive bodybuilding thing, right? The average gym guy is never going to be stepping on stage. And that, to me, is just kind of a, a, a relevancy. So, yeah, like there are some assumptions that are being built into this. It may take you 10 years to accumulate five years of productive training. But to say, oh, 30 years of hard training is what it took for me to get here, I think it's just a really uh, disingenuous, deceptive kind of statement because... It didn't take them 30 years to get there. It took them five to seven, or however long it took them, and then they've been in maintenance mode for the last decade and a half. Uh, I guess the final point on this is that it may sound discouraging to some. Like Eric, for example, commented uh, under that post um, that, well, so does this mean that after five years of good training, I'm just wasting my time? And the response to that is, well, it kind of depends on how you're perceiving it. Like if your goal is to put on just slabs of muscle naturally after that point, then yeah, you could say that. But at the same time, it also means that for the first three to five years, you could really bust your ass, like do all the progression and all the volume and all of that stuff. And then, you know, you can do a fraction of that, maintain pretty much all your results, you can adopt a much more minimalistic approach and enjoy your life, whatever, prioritize other things and still have that awesome physique that you built for yourself. Yeah, and I think I must have missed that comment. And to me, that's sort of trying to twist around what I was saying. Yeah, if, you're go if you think you're going to get bigger, then yes, you are wasting your time. I'm sorry, and maybe that sounds like it, but, but you are. You're spending however many hours in the gym for literally almost zero return. By definition, that's a waste of time, right? If you are putting in that much effort to get essentially no results, yeah, I would say that's a waste of time. Have a life, go do other things. You can seriously, two or three workouts, you will maintain where you're at for the long term. And throw, but yeah, if your goal is to actually keep progressing and you think you're going to get significant results and you're spending 10 hours in the way, yeah, you are wasting your time because there are way better, way more enjoyable things you could be doing. Yeah, yeah. So uh, anyway, uh, I just thought I would get you to rant on this a little bit because I, I enjoyed it, that back and forth. So to get to our actual topic today, um, that was body fat set point and whether or not we can change our body fat set point. I know that you have been asked this before on different podcasts, but maybe I can ask some questions which might light some different perspective on it or not. We will see. Um, but first of all, let's get into the question of what is a body fat set point? Because there are some people who kind of question that whole notion to begin with. Um, so what, what is your general take on this? Hey guys, just a second. Are you enjoying this podcast? If so, I'd really appreciate you dropping a five-star rating on the Sustainable Self-Development Podcast on iTunes. That will help me to grow this podcast, rank higher on the platform, and get more high-quality guests over time, which is a win-win for everybody. So if you could do this little bit of favor for me, I'll owe you one. Thanks a lot, guys, and let's continue. Okay, so this... So this is a debate that has probably been going on for 50 years, possibly longer, right? I've got some ridiculous folder with like 25 different review papers and about half and half conclude that there is something to it and the other concludes that there isn't. So 
in its strictest sense, and you got to realize, number one, this came out of animal research initially, and this you're going to see that animals and humans are very different because of different uh, the different worlds we live in. The idea was, okay, you take a mouse or a rat, and it weighs some amount. I don't know how much rats usually weigh. Let's say it's a kilo, just for lack of a better idea. So if you diet them, they their metabolism slows down. They move around less. They start conserving energy. And then if you give them access to food, they will eat until they get back to a kilo and then they'll stop. And if you overfeed them, they will get more active and their metabolic rate will go up and their hunger will go down and they'll stop eating. And I mean, you can force feed them. And then as soon as you take the excess, stop force feeding them, they will eat less and they will return to a kilo. Okay, so that is what that is a set point. The idea is that the body has some goal something and i'll talk about what that might be right is it weight is it body fat percentage is it something else that the body wants to quote unquote defend right so your body wants to keep you as so now we're talking about humans so you weigh whatever 80 kilos uh 176 pounds for any non-metric people and your body wants to keep you at that rough body weight well, if you diet, right, your body will adapt, hunger will go up, metabolism will slow down, which will facilitate you returning to that body weight. And in premise, if you were to overeat and gain weight, eventually your hunger would shut down, you burn more calories, which should bring you back, right? So that's the basic idea, is that there is some essentially fixed body weight point that your body is trying to keep you at by defending it in either direction, right? Now this happens really reliably in animals. There's a question of whether or not it really happens in humans. And I do want to get kind of briefly into, you know, some of the, the different arguments. Because, like I said, in its strictest sense, a set point probably doesn't exist, right? Like, clearly your body is not going, all right, boom, you're 80 kilos. If you get to 80 and a half, we're bringing you back down. If you get to 79 and a half, we're bringing you back up, right? It's not like it's this rigidly controlled. That would be ridiculous. <laughs> um, so in addition to the set point idea, there's another concept you'll come across called the settling point, which some people think is more uh, of an issue. The set, okay, so the set point is biological, right? And we, sorry, let me back up. And, and in, in the early days, nobody knew what it was. They were just like, well, somehow the brain is getting a signal from the body. And there were all kinds of theories. There was a, a glucostat, which meant the brain was monitoring glucose, there was a proteostat, it was monitoring protein, there was a lipostat, which meant it was uh, monitoring fat, and the changes there um, would all sort of be sending this signal. As we entered the 90s and leptin was discovered, suddenly this gave a potential mechanism. Oh, because nobody knew what the signal was, right? They're just like, we think there's one, but we don't know what it is. And then leptin was discovered, and they went, oh, here's a signal from your body fat that's telling your brain how much fat you're carrying. Right? Maybe this is part. This is the signal, or is part of the signal. And it probably turns out that over different time frames, glucose, protein, fat, it all is playing a role. Right? And and I'll come back to this, but we know for like in the short term, right? If your blood sugar goes down, you tend to get hungry. If your liver glycogen gets emptied, you tend to get hungry. There's the glucose stat. Right? The brain goes, ha ha, we're running out of glucose. We need make you go eat some bagels or some bread or whatever. We know now that muscle is sending a signal to the brain, driving hunger, uh, and it's part of the whole rebound body fat phenomenon. And then, of course, there's fat, body fat, 
which is more sending a signal of not only what you're eating in the short term for a bunch of complicated reasons, but also how much body fat you're carrying, right? So it probably turns out that they were all right, that all of this is going to the brain and telling it how much you're eating, how much fat you're carrying, how much muscle mass you're carrying, and integrating all of this to control. So that's sort of the set point physiology. So it's, that's genetic or biological rather. Then there's the settling point. The settling point is environmental. What it says is, oh, people's body weight are reacting to the environment, right? So we take someone who's inactive and has a poor diet. We change their diet. We get them exercising. They will lose some amount of body weight and body fat, right? Let's say they started 80 kilos. Now they're 75. As long as they maintain those environmental factors, they'll stay there, right? Settling point. And this argument like I said, has been going back and forth for about five years. And since that time, there have been a couple of newer models that I will get to, but I want to back up yet again. Clearly, there is a settling point, right? Clearly, we can take someone and change their lifestyle, eating habits and exercise, and they will tend to settle it at a new body weight or body fat percentage, so long as they maintain that. And they may not get a lot of pushback from the body, right? But the settling point, the people who say it's only a settling point are ignoring 50 years of data showing that when you diet, the body adapts, right? Metabolic rate goes down. The number of calories you burn during exercise goes down. Your non-exercise activity thermogenesis, that, that extra activity goes down. But it not only goes down um, relative to your body weight, right? A smaller body burns less calories. There's that adaptive component, right? And by that, I mean there's an extra drop in metabolic rate outside of, of the weight loss, right? So if you lose five kilos, and your resting metabolic rate would normally drop by 100, but it drops by 150, that extra 50 is that adaptive, and that's hormonal. The data on that is immense, right? We go back to the classic study, Minnesota semi-starvation study done way back in the 50s, starved these men for six months, they wanted to kind of mimic a concentration camp, and they saw these, I mean, they lost 25% of their body weight but like the resting metabolic rate went down by 40%, right? Only 25% was body weight, the other 15% was adaptive and everything else changed too. So the people who are adamant about the settling point are basically ignoring that entire data set because you can't deny, and I've seen papers that are like, nope, there is no adaptive component and that's just provably wrong, except that it's kind of not. And the reason, and you see this a lot in science, it's like you do 10 studies, five say one thing and five say the other. And then if you divide them up by the ones that say there is an adaptive component and the others that say there is an adaptive, is not an adaptive component, you can see the patterns. And what you typically see is that the studies showing an adaptive component, the people were either leaner or they lost a larger amount of body fat. And in the group that showed that there was not an effect, they lost less weight or they were carrying more body fat. So there's no, there's no contradiction to me. It's a matter of which data set you're looking at. Okay, so that's set point versus settling point. Set point is biological, settling point is environmental. People have been arguing back and forth. And the answer is that they're not mutually exclusive, right? That's where people went wrong on this. They, well, it's got to be X or Y. No, it doesn't. Maybe they both are active. So there's been some newer models. And this gets super complicated. Like, there's all kinds of stuff still going on, but it's more background noise. So a guy named J.R. Speakman has written a lot about this. And so one of the models that has been proposed is called the general model of intake regulation. And what it says is that both the environmental factors and the physiological factors are combining to determine where things end up. Well, duh. And in that model, the 
environmental factors are not compensated. By that I mean, right, when you start to diet, your body compensates. Hunger goes up, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. The environmental factors are not compensated, not unconsciously. Right, we can consciously compensate. Oh, I don't have to do so much activity. I'm going to go to the gym. Oh, I'm being exposed to chronic food that makes me hungry. I'm going to avoid, like, we can consciously make those choices. But the environmental factors contributing to this, the body cannot compensate for, right? They're environmental. We don't have to, at least in, you know, we don't have to walk anywhere. We drive. High calorie, tasty food is very inexpensive and easy to get, right? Your body can't take that into account. What it can take into account is, oh, your body weight has fallen below a certain point. We can compensate for that, the biological stuff. Now, the question then becomes, why doesn't this prevent us from getting overweight? And I'll come back to that as well. The fourth model I want to talk about, which is the one I, I personally think has probably the, the, the most utility in this discussion, is called the dual intervention point model. What it says is that within a certain range of body weights, it's a settling point, right? So we take our 80 kilo guy, Start him on activity. Let's say he's moderately active. His diet's decent. We change his diet, clean his diet up a little bit, get him exercising a little bit more. He comes down to 75 kilos and stays there. Or life gets crazy. His food intake goes up. His activity goes down. He goes up to 85 kilos, right? That's environmental. The body's not fighting back because it's right. So within that range, it's a settling point. But now let's say he wants to actively diet. Right, so from 80 kilos, he goes to 75, then he wants to go to 70, right, to get to 10% body fat. Boom, now we see the, the set point idea. Now we see the physiological adaptation. Now hunger goes up. Now metabolic rate adapts. I don't see them. So within a narrow range, there's an upper and lower settling point. And as you try to get outside of that, there's a physiological adaptation suggesting a set point. Now, again, the strict idea of the set point that your body must maintain this particular body weight is probably not the case. It is a range. Um, I actually, while I was looking into this before we started this call, I came across truly disproving that scientists can be truly stupid. The argument was a tight biological control of body weight is questioned by repeated measurements of body weight, which show a considerable intra-individual variance and its spontaneous day-to-day -day changes. Basically, they're thinking that that two to three pound or one to one and a half kilo change in body weight from day-to-day -day that we know is water and food in the gut somehow makes a set point. It's just, I, that is one of the dumbest things I've read in a while because even they apparently aren't aware that that is not tissue weight. That is not a real change in anything. Anyone dehydrating somebody is, right? So I'm not saying like, it's not like your body goes, ah, must maintain at 80 kilos. It, there's within a range. If you get below a certain range, it goes, okay, um, we need to adapt. And I mean, people can clearly get down there and stay leaner, but the body is fighting you. And there's a great paper by Annie McLean, hilariously enough, called it's like the biological... <clears throat> impetus for regain of body weight or something like that. And he looks at all the metabolic adaptations to fat loss that want to bring us back to where we started or sometimes even higher. A final point, and then I'll get back to your original question, I promise, is why doesn't the body seem to do a very good job of preventing weight gain, right? We know it's way harder to lose fat than to gain it for most people, right? Some people, when they overfeed and start to gain fat, hunger shuts down, their activity goes up and they burn it off. Most people don't in the modern environment. And there's been a bunch of different theories that are proposed to explain this. You know, one has to do with leptin. Above a certain point, leptin doesn't really send much of a signal. Right? It's called leptin resistance. And they used to think when leptin was first discovered, they thought leptin is an anti-obesity hormone. 
And the best quote I saw was some researcher wrote, if leptin is an anti-obesity hormone, meaning it prevents weight gain, it must go down in history as the least effective hormone ever <laughs> because it doesn't work. It doesn't do anything. But that's because leptin was never about preventing obesity. Leptin is to prevent starvation, right? Leptin's main effect is when it drops, not when it goes up. So that's one of the reasons to explain, like, why? Why is it so much harder? Even if the body were fighting back, right, let's go back to that third model, that general model of intake regulation where you've got the environment, which the body can't compensate for, and physiology. Let's say that, because there is, there's evidence when you overfeed people beyond, beyond about 10% of their starting weight, metabolic rate goes up. Their body is almost trying to bring them back to normal. But in the modern environment, I think that's just overwhelmed, right? Like a good example, you go to a big dinner, you are full to the point of being sick, and someone says, you want a piece of cake? Oh yeah, right? You find a way. And I think in the modern environment, for most people, no matter how hard your body is fighting back, the environment can overcome that especially palatable food. Oh, like if you talk to guys, right, who bulk hard, right, who really try to gain a lot of weight, they hit a point where they're like, I don't want to eat anymore. Eventually your body's just like, no. I mean, you got to gain a lot of weight for that. And, and clearly for most people that, but even then people don't just get consistently, they don't just keep getting fatter and fatter and fatter by and large. They hit a new point, at which case they sort of achieve a stable point. Anyway, going back to this, I don't see the set and settling point as being mutually exclusive. A lot of study, you know, Leibel did, L-E-I-B-E-L did a study where he took lean and overweight individuals and he either dieted to 10% below or fed them to 10% above. And he found that at that point there were metabolic adaptations. So it may be that within about a 10% range, like 5% up and below, it's just a settling point. But once you get outside of that range, the body fights back and it becomes more of a physiological set point. And that's kind of where, to me, it always seemed dumb that they had to be one or the other. I think clearly they're both involved. It just depends on degrees. So that's a very long uh, introduction to what your actual question was. So is there a strict set point? Probably not. However, there is clearly a place where your body sort of does try to keep you, right? Like you can, if you, you know, weight train and eat, you can gain weight, but you'll have to sort of keep doing that to stay there. And your body, I mean, you are, you're burning more calories, your metabolic rate is up, but as long as you keep your food intake high, clearly people can diet and stay lean, but they're having to fight, you know, a general biology. Uh, most people tell you that, they're always a little bit hungry, right? Their body is going to file beyond a certain point. And we even know statistically obesity, you know, people who lose weight, usually like 10% loss is, is pretty much the average for successful dieters. And I'm not talking about athletes and bodybuilders, the general dieter. So it, it suggests to me that 10% is about the cutoff between set point and settling point. Like once you get about 10% below where you're at, your body is going to fight back. So again, there's a range of set to ling points. But beyond that, clearly, okay, so what determines the set point? Well, part of it is they're like, we don't know. Although the same paper that said the stupid thing about body weight was like, well, you know, we'd have to know the reasons that this is occurring in the brain. This is a 2019 paper. We've known what's going on in the brain for years. And what it is is there's this integrated signal from leptin, from glucose, from amino acids, from fat. Turns out that muscle is sending a signal to the brain that is driving hunger and is playing a role in all of this. They're all integrated in the hypothalamus that is controlling metabolism, right? For them to like pretend that we don't know pretty much what, and there's all this stuff with 
NPY and pro-opio, melanocortin and cocaine activated, all this other stuff. Like we, we have a pretty good idea of what's going on in the brain, even if we don't know all of it. So I thought that was kind of a silly statement. But they, I, I, they were coming from it like, oh, we don't believe in a set point, so we're going to make some really dumb arguments because the body weight thing just baffles me. Anyway, so is it set? Where is it set? Does it change? Now, it looks like in humans it can go up. There is limited evidence. And this is really hard to study, right, because we don't exactly know where the set point resides. Like what... What is the determinant? Like, what is telling the brain this is where we want to stay? That they really haven't figured out. I've seen some theorizing, but never any, and I'm not super up to date on this. So that makes it part of a problem. How do we measure set point? Well, we can't. What we can do is infer it by what happens metabolically when you get outside of a certain range. It does look like it can go up. There is some evidence that if you gain a lot of fat and stay there, you may create a new set point because people, once they've been carried an excess amount of body fat for a long time, it seems like the threshold for metabolic adaptations goes up along with it. I seem to recall there was some evidence that like during pregnancy it can go up. I think puberty it probably can go up depending on the environment. Like there's just, there's a lot of things when with kids, their system is very uh, plastic or malleable. And if they're like, if you get, if you're very overweight, when you're a kid, you tend to be kind of screwed later in life. So I think you can sort of program the set point there. Um, when you're younger, pregnancy maybe, long-term overfatness maybe, but then the real question that you get asked is, does it ever come down? And I've looked at this, I've followed this research for 10 or 15 years because I'm old, and the answer seems to be no. I have never seen a single piece of evidence suggesting that it ever, well, again, let me rephrase this. Since we can't say there's a specific set point, the better question to ask is, do the metabolic adaptations to fat loss, the adaptive component, assuming you, you know, whatever, we take our 80 kilo guy, he diets to 70 kilos, he's at 10% body fat, he stays there. He is facing certain metabolic adaptations. Maybe the better way to phrase it is, do those adaptations ever go away completely? And the answer is no. And they have followed this in what they call the, the basically the post-dieted. I mean, and realize we're usually dealing with, with people carrying a lot of excess body fat, but they diet down and they stay there for years. And even after seven years of maintaining that lower body weight, there is still a decrease in metabolic rate greater than you would predict. Now you could argue, well, what about 10 years? What, what about 20 years? What if you train hard for 30 years? Sorry, <laughs> um, right? Well, but at that point, you might as well say it's forever, right? Given that most people, if they're gonna fail on a diet, fail in the first two or three years, saying, well, maybe it happens in a decade is effectively saying it never happens. Because it, it that, you know, now I do need to make it really clear. It's not as big as people think, right? And I'm going to rant a little bit because this is one of my current, I have many current annoyances, but one of them, this idea online or in the news media that because of these metabolic adaptations, you can't lose weight and should never try and nobody, they are so overstating the effect of this, right? In overweight individuals who've dieted down and who are now at maintenance, the decrease in resting metabolic rate, it's like 50 calories a day, more than you would predict, right? That's nothing. That's half an apple. It's not like you're, there's a 500 calorie deficit from where you should be that's trying to get you to gain body fat again. It's been so drastically overstated it hurts, but it is still there, right? 
And, and the leaner you are, the more significant it tends to be. Generally, leaner people get hit way harder by all this stuff than people carrying more fat for a bunch of super boring reasons that are not worth getting into. Just accept that it happens. But even so, when you come back to maintenance, a lot of this goes away. A lot of this is an acute like So when you're actively dieting, that decrease in resting metabolic rate may be 10% over what you'd predict because you're in a calorie deficit. When you bring calories back to maintenance, it's maybe 5%. So it's like... 50, maybe 70 to 90 calories. It's there and it never goes away, but it's not significant really in the big picture. All you gotta do is 10 more, 10 more minutes of cardio a day to offset that and let you eat a little bit more. Um, I think if there's any really long-term effect, it is hunger. And, and there's even some, I couldn't find the paper for the life of me right now. They basically argued that all of the adaptations that want to make you gain body fat again are not really metabolic. It's the increase in hunger. And there's the data they're basing that on is in most forms of what are called monogenetic obesity, basically severe, severe obesity due to a single gene issue. It's hunger that's off the map, right? Activity is not usually what's impacted. It's people can't stop eating. Um, Prater Willie is one. It's uh, they don't respond to ghrelin, which is an appetite suppressing hormone, or they over, I forget which it is. They can't stop eating. They can't. You have to lock, I mean, I kid you not, they have to lock the refrigerator up. So most of this is probably driven by appetite, and that brings us back to environment. If you are dieted down and you are chronically hungry, not to mention that all these, like you actually have a better attention to tasty foods, right? And you've probably experienced this, right? You're out in the world, you're walking wherever, and suddenly you go, cookies, right? You just, your brain is attuned to, because your, your body is going fine, fine food, you're, you're eat. And I think that's a big part of the problem, right? Is that the environment that makes avoiding overweight so difficult because it can always, we can always put more food down the food hole even no matter how full we get by and large. That same environment makes it damn near impossible to stay lean because we are surrounded by food constantly. And I think that probably explains more of the asymmetry than anything biological. There's a biology to it too, but it doesn't matter. But the environment is so profound. We live in what's called an obesogenic environment, right? We are surrounded by food, food cues on commercials, YouTube, Facebook, the world. Like unless you just become a social misfit and never leave your house, you can't avoid it. All our social events revolve around food. Like that's, that's kind of where the rubber hits the road. You can keep the training is not that bad, um, but it's avoiding the excessive food intake that tends to get driven. So that, so that's, so like I said, it's not the decrease in metabolic rate, the supposed set point biology. It's just not that big, but it exists. And to ignore it is, I think, to ignore 50 years of data. So the long answer, or the short answer to the long question is, there's kind of a set point. It's probably better to think of it. There is a physiology that tends to prevent long, prevent prevent excessive fat loss. But those metabolic adaptations do not ever seem to go away. Yeah. So I, I guess um, in a practical sense, the big question is, and, and the people that are usually asking this question, you know, can I change my set point? Are usually, you know, guys or girls who want to be lean, you know, they want to look a bit more so like their favorite Instagram influencer. And maybe every once in a while they manage to diet down there. But then they rebound immediately. And that's, you know, that's that kind of sucks because that's that could be probably avoided by being smart at the end of a diet because you're kind of in this vulnerable place at that point because you're just so depleted and food focused and all of those things. But but the big question is, um, we all know those people 
a few of them at least, I know a couple that are for some reason pretty comfortable maintaining, you know, single digit body fat percentage, even sometimes deep into the single digits as a guy, for example. And then there are those that are always kind of hover around in that 15 to 20% range. And whenever they get down to 10% or even under, is just uh, an unbearable world that's staring them in the face. And the big question is, can they ever become that person for whom staying very lean is relatively easy, you know? Hey guys, sorry, just a short interruption. Mainly doing this because people have been asking me a lot in private messages on Instagram and Facebook and email whether I'm doing online coaching. And the answer is actually yes. Maybe I've been doing a bad job promoting this so far, but in each video description, if you go to the show notes, you will always see a Calendly link there where you can book a free call, where we can chat on a call for up to 45 minutes. We can talk about your goals, what you would like to achieve, and whether or not you and I are a good fit for a coach-client relationship and can effectively work together to achieve your goals in the most efficient way possible. So if that is something of interest to you, then you can check the show notes wherever you're listening or watching this. There will be a Calendly link where you can just book that free call and we can move forward from there. So that's all I had to say for now. Let's continue with the show. Well, here and it, well, here's what's interesting, right? Because everything I've said basically is depressing and miserable, and so and like, and I mean, that's the message that's put in the media that I dislike so much. Nobody should even try because everybody fails. Well, that's provably untrue. I think the reason most people fail is that they take an absolutely appalling approach to how they address the problem. Most dieting approaches and training approaches are just dumb as hell, and it's toxic. Of course, it doesn't work because it's not done right. However, even if you do it all right. Again, I've seen, well, okay, so these adaptations never go away. Research also shows people report that the longer they stay at a reduced body weight, and again, they're not looking at lean athletes, right? They're looking at the average person. People report that it gets easier. So how do we reconcile these two seemingly contradictions? And a lot of it is simply, in a general sense, it's habits, right? I think if you look at people like, I mean, a lot of us, a lot of people listening, we're probably you know, fatter as children. I certainly was part of what got me into this industry because um, I was always obsessive about my own, you know. And over the years of developing certain food habits, like without trying real hard, I can stay 12 to 15%. Just I train enough and my diet's good enough most of the time. And, but same thing, if I want to get to like 10%, it's, it's a struggle. And if I want to get leaner than that, it's suffering. And I probably won't do it, especially now, because I just don't have the, the drive for it psychologically. Um, but I was also a chubby little kid. Is that impacting it? Um, it's probably, you know, it's probably not the way I was. It's just, yeah, there's, there's a sort of a fight that goes on. There are some people that are naturally lean. And one of the interesting research questions that's only been going on for about a decade is, Maybe we should be studying them, right? Rather than we know, we kind of know what's going on in people that gain weight really easily. What's going on in the people who don't, right? What's going on in that percentage of people that avoid gaining body fat in the modern environment? Maybe that's the answer we need, because if you can figure out what's going on there biologically and figure out a way to mimic that in everybody else, well, that would be rad, right? It hasn't really gone anywhere that I can see. There just seems to be differences in how appetite regulates itself and activity regulates it. You know, NEAT is kind of the big 
the big player. Uh, I'm sure you've had somebody, possibly me, talk about you know the early paper. When you overfeed some people, they just fidget and burn off 800 calories a day. They don't get fat, and most people don't, and they do get fat. And so there's something, there's some difference. So the question then becomes, I will ask you, these people who are getting to single digits and staying there, did they start lean? Or were they the average guy who started at 15%, got to 7% and stay there? What's your feeling for that? Yeah, usually, usually always lean. <laughs> and that's just it. They have a biology. They are that 10% of people or who or whatever that, you know, that is their quote unquote set point. And like for them, right, for skinny guys, the hard part is getting them to gain weight, right? You take these guys who are always skinny and always lean, you know, the quote unquote ectomorph, and you try to get them to eat and they're just like, oh, man, one big meal and I'm just full for the day. And you're like, God, I wish I had that problem. Um, you know, they're, you, you start overfeeding them and their energy expenditures go like you're chasing your tail. They are that small percentage, you know? So the question is, if you are, let's say you're the average dude and you hold 15 to 20%, are you going to be able to get to 8% and stay there easily? I don't think so. I don't think easily. Can it be done? Sure. But it is going to take just constant attention to your eating habits, to your training. Like it doesn't take much of a slip um, or much of a, an interruption. Like, and you know, people forget, oh, it's not like you go from eight to 10% overnight because you missed a couple of workouts, but it's pretty much like a, you know, daily, weekly, monthly, forever discipline. And it could, I think it gets really exhausted. Do people do it? Sure. Obsessive neurotics. I'm sorry, bodybuilders. Yeah, they do it all the time. Um, but by and large, for most people, like it will be, it will be a struggle to stay there basically your whole life. Um, there, there are better and worse ways to do it. Like, I don't know if you are invoking his name specifically, you know, Martin Burke. And who I don't, I don't know. I do think he, I, I don't know his history per se. I seem to recall him at least asserting that he did carry more body fat when he was old, when he was younger. You know, he got to 6%, stayed there for years, but he did it behaviorally right? He applied intermittent fasting. So the food that he was allowed to eat, which I guarantee you was less than he wanted, was at least consolidated into two or three big meals rather than being stretched out across the day where you're like, oh, I'm on 2000 calories. Man, these meals are small and I'm hungry all the time. You know, he was training intensely, doing whatever he was doing. Like, so yeah, can it be done? Yes, if you, but you have to use a lot of, you know, behavioral stuff um, you know, dieting strategies, which arguably bodybuilders probably have a better, you know, if you want, there's, there's some truth to, if you want to, you know, success leaves clues. Bodybuilders are probably the most successful dieters in the world because bottom line, that's what their contest hinges on. And, you know, you look at what they're doing. They are eating lots of protein, which helps to blunt hunger. I know Martin was a big believer and I think up to like four grams per kilo, I think. I, it's been a while. Um, two grams per pound, thereabouts. Uh, you know, moderate carb. There are ways you can do it, but I don't know that it'll ever be easy. They're relatively better and worse ways. So, but the people who are leaning around are leaning around, and they just stay that way no matter what they do. If they start to gain a little fat, appetite shuts down. They go right back to where they were. Of course, they're probably overrepresented in the physique field because if they weren't like that they wouldn't be successful and i think that always it's like you were saying earlier on the people who look who are big now or look a certain way now 
kind of look that way when they were younger. They're just bigger versions of themselves. But that promotes this idea that anyone can get there so long as they put in their 30 years of training. Well, the guys that are lean year-round probably were lean most of their life. And maybe that was behavioral, but probably it was a combination of behavior and biology. They probably didn't gain a bunch of body fat when they were kids, so they never programmed that into them. They learned good eating habits and training, or not. I mean, there are people who get by on genetics till they hit about 25. Look at all, this is an American thing, look at all those high school athletes who are just buffed and jacked and awesome. Man, they hit 25, and it all falls apart because they didn't have to develop much of a work ethic. They got by on genetics. Now, if they had a work ethic, they could probably stay there super easily. But yeah, I don't think it'll ever be particularly easy for the average person. It can be done, but it's a lot of hard work. And probably, I wouldn't say you're wasting your time, but when you realize that, you know, women like the, the most women like the dad bod anyway, who are you trying to impress? You're impressing your, your buddies. You're not impressing, most women don't care um, unless, there are, unless they're in the subculture. So basically you're doing it to impress the other dudes in the gym. I know guys don't want to hear that, but it's, it's in general that's the truth. Now, I, I was just going to make a funny comment that um, a lot of Instagram, or not, not just Instagram, just fitness influencers feel a lot of pressure to stay that lean. And I think the, the fitness um, influencers and personalities that did it smartly are those that have a brand built, built around looking more buff and, and bulky and stuff because they get to enjoy themselves more. <laughs> oh, no, no doubt about it. There's, there's someone in the industry, and I'm not going to name them for a number of reasons, but I mean, they, may, they are ripped and buffed all the time. And I happen to know what they have to do to maintain that. They train four hours a day against complete and utter exhaustion. And they basically eat nothing but lean protein and like a kilo of cauliflower a day, right? And now this is not healthy. This is not a healthy approach to anything. And, and certainly, like I said, the people who are doing it well are not doing that. You know, at least we're seeing the, the people that are building their brand on this. They're just like, look, you know, I train like a human being and I eat strictly 90% of the time, but promoting, you know, flexible dieting concepts and you can take a break and that will, like, and that will help certainly. Like, again, a lot of dieting culture is super toxic because people, as much as bodybuilders have contributed to successful dieting, people forget they only look that way for one day, right? What they have to do for six months to get to contest shape, well, you're not seeing them the rest of the year. Now, yeah, now that we have social media and all that, a lot of people are under a environmental business pressure to stay lean like that. Um, but these guys like, okay, great, these bodybuilders diet like psychos, and some of them make it to stage. We don't talk about the 99% that failed because they cracked, um, but they're held up as like, you know, the the epitome. And it's like, well, they look like that for one day because that's not sustainable by and large. Um, what I was going to, I was going to say two things going back to the dad bod thing and like body fat percentage, like the set point thing. I saw a paper once a couple years ago and it was basically an ass women, like showed them pictures of different guys, of different body, you know, like what is your, and it was the dad bod thing, right? It's men who were about 12 to 15% body fat. And that happens to correlate exactly where men's immune systems are optimized. Because when you gain a lot of body fat, your immune system gets, and when you get super lean, your immune system gets compromised. That was the biological driver on the physical preference. And we know that for men, waist to hip ratio, which is an indicator of fertility and ease of birth, like th this is what's driving this bus biome. Now there's cultural stuff. We've trained people, ah, 
Chris Hemsworth as Thor, that's the ideal male body. Do you know what he goes through to get to that? Because somebody asked on my Facebook group again, does anybody know how, you know, these movie stars get in shape for this? It's like, well, they use horrible dieting approaches, starve themselves, right? Christian Bale for was the machinist, ate an apple a day, because you know that's healthy, to starve himself into submission. And the only way they can do that is because of they don't get a $20 million payday if they don't get to where they need to be. Right? The social media influencers and the Instagram influencers, if their brand is based on their physique, they don't have a living if they get out of shape. So that can be a humongous environmental driver to overcome any biology, right? If you know that if you start gaining body fat, you're going to lose your subscribers or use your followers and lose your business, well, you now have an extremely valid reason to deal because sometimes that's what it comes down to is they just deal with it or they were lucky enough genetically to just be able to stay lean really easily and again a lot of them are doing things much better than they used to so i'm, I'm at least happy for that they're not promoting the same toxic diet information of you know the individual i mentioned had a book the, the one who trains four hours a day that was like yes this is the diet you should follow lean protein and a kilo of cauliflower a day i'm like don't don't push your eating disorder on other people just don't. So at least it's getting better in that regards. But, you know, so, so you've got all these variables. The physiology cannot be ignored. Your body will fight back. How much? Debatable, depending on what you do, right? Because even, even think about, let's say your, your metabolic rate's down by 100 calories a day. Adapt the adaptive component, right? Smaller body will always burn less. Well, just do an extra 100 calories a day of activity, whether through cardio or need or whatever, then you get to eat that 100 calories more. And I think that's a big part of it, right? We know that activity is a much bigger player in weight maintenance than weight loss. And A, it helps to offset this small decrease in energy expenditure. In some cases, it blunts hunger. But as much as anything, it lets you eat more total food volume and not be in a calorie excess. But those are behavioral aspects of maintaining that long-term fat loss is yeah, if you're the guy that gets from 15 to 10% and you're hungry because you're not able to eat a lot of food, well, you may need to do more activity to allow a greater total food volume, right? So rather than being like, God, I got to eat 1,600 calories for the rest of my life, well, go start hammering it activity-wise, and now you can eat 2,000 and still be in calorie balance. Yeah. Um, I think uh, when I look around the people who maintain extremely lean physiques and that are doesn't require from them to make that a full-time thing, basically, like a full-time job to manage their leanness, tend to be neat freaks, like Alberto Nunez is, is someone who comes to mind like that, who probably is able to stay very lean if he wants to relatively effortlessly is because he just subconsciously burns so many extra calories that even if that leanness would be a bit uncomfortable he is just still able to eat a tremendous amount of food which still feels somewhat uncomfortable to him at certain times and i think that might be the one hope where you can try it for yourself like get lean try to add back in food and then see if your energy expenditure kind of subconsciously upregulates where eventually you can get to a point where you're just feeling comfortable and you don't have to constantly work to burn more calories or control your food intake and stay at that level, right? You know, and there's also, you know, to total body weight is going to play a role in this. Um, he's, he's a big dude, right? He's, I don't know what he, he he's, I think he's in a low 200s, high 190s pounds, like. Alberto, no, he's like, um, when, when he's shredded, he will be 
in the low 160s, I think. But he is he's like what, five five nine. So, well, but yeah. he's a muscular dude, yeah. You know, but you look at you know you look at those guys. You you know, it kind of goes back to that first question with with you know Eric Salazar. If you look at those bodybuilders, they are probably training intensely in the weight room. You know, two out one and a half to two hours a day. What six days a week? Five days a week? Weight training doesn't burn a staggering number of calories, but they're probably burning you know an additional eight hundred calories a day through that alone. That allows them to eat a lot more food. And, and, and this, and like, we could have a whole podcast about, you know, the determinants of hunger because there's a biology to it. There's a hormonal aspect to it. Fat, muscle, muscle is sending a signal to the brain that is driving hunger and has plays a role in this. But the stomach is critically important and the actual physical stretching, food volume, um, even outside of the calorie value of it, right? This is why vegetables are more filling than donuts. Donuts just happen to taste better and right because it fills up the stomach. So if you're doing those 800, so rather than, you know, having to doing an, an hour of activity and eating 1600, you're doing two hard hours of activity. You can eat 2000 more total food volume, more food actually physically in your stomach that can help to offset some of these hunger drivers, especially, again, lots of lean proteins, generally unrefined carbs, which have sort of a low energy, a lot of high volume for their calorie level, moderate fat intakes. You know, some people use intermittent fasting. Some people still will have, you know, free meals or diet, you know, whatever it is to kind of try to offset some of this. So you've got all these things that, that behaviorally these folks are doing that are facilitating that. And you see this in the general weight loss population. In, in the U.S., we have the National Weight Control Registry, which follows it's like 3,000 plus people who've lost small to large amounts of weight and kept it off for, I mean, some are like 30 years. And they all show very similar behavioral patterns, like daily activity, a fairly decent amount of intense activity. It, some do cardio, some do weight, some do a mix, doesn't really matter. But they are extremely active day to day. They tend to eat the same things every day. Uh, they tend to not have, you know, big weekends where they change it because that's where a lot of people get really messed up. Their, their weekend eating habits are totally different than their weekly habits. They weigh, they monitor. And like, that's probably the big one, right? Is how many people get lean and kind of let slip. They stop paying attention when the diet's over. And then suddenly they wake up and holy crap. And I'm 12, like, no, you didn't wake up back at 12%. You just ignored it for six weeks. You know, so they're doing regular monitoring. They're doing things so that even if they're not being meticulous day to day to day, if they start to slip for a few days and see things changing, they can go, okay, I got to get it back together. So even that, you know, it's not like you have to be perfect 100% of the time because that's unsustainable, but they're doing, you know, and I think if you look at the successful Instagram influences or whatever, they're probably doing similar things in the aggregate. They're training a lot. They're training intensely, right? They're not going and just goofing off in the gym like so many people do. They're staying relatively adherent to their diet. They're including you know, whatever treats or flexible eating when they want it, because that keeps you sane. And some of it is just they've got that financial and pressure to stay lean on top of whatever genetics or, or anything else they've got. And that's a pretty strong driver to to just kind of sometimes when the rubber beats the road, um, or as Dan Duchesne put it, dieting eventually the fight is with the refrigerator. And uh, he's not wrong, right? Eventually, that's what, it, and, and I'm sure they do similar things. They don't keep certain foods in the house. They probably, you know, there's things that they're doing that work for them that prevent them from having, you know, I, I don't keep certain things in the house because I'll eat them. 
And I know that I learned that over many years. So if like I want to have whatever cookies or whatever it is, I have to put on pants, go to the store. And usually at that point, I won't bother because putting on pants is just exhausting. So it's just like, by the time I have that many barriers to overcome, I just won't bother doing it. And if I do, I will only buy what I want to eat, right? I'm like, all right, if I want whatever, Fig Newtons, it doesn't even matter. I won't get a bag because if I get a bag, I'll eat the bag. If I get a single serving and go home, I'll eat single serving unless I want to be really weird and go back out, <laughs> which is even less likely to happen, right? So I think they've also learned a lot of personal strategies that allow them to maintain that in the aggregate in the long term. So that that's all things that are incredibly valuable in managing your environment. Like if you want to maintain a lower body fat percentage, you can make use of a lot of cool strategies um, behaviorally to manage your energy expenditure and your food intake, being smart with things like social events. And I think another added layer to that, which is often overlooked, is there has to be a certain level of acceptance that if you want oh, to maintain absolutely. this lean, leaner physique, significantly leaner than what you were before, there will be certain elements to your lifestyle and your eating behavior which will have to change permanently. Like I, I get questions like this a lot from from people that I work with, for example, like, okay, so I used to you know, have all these snack foods around and, and all these things that I used to munch on. Like how can I, you know, once I got to my lean physique, how can I reincorporate that? And <laughs> I don't want to say it that bluntly, but to some extent, the answer is you don't. Correct, like, yes. You, you will have to give that shit up if you actually want to maintain a lean physique. Yeah, and, and that's another, like, that's part of, you know, the whole thing I sort of refer to as, as toxic dieting culture, which is that, you know, people have a lot of really mistaken ideas about dieting, either how to do it, because most dieting stuff out there is terrible, right? They want to starve and do broth and soup and eat terrible diets and so they do that. They are they have are misguided about how quickly it's going to occur, right? Even even physique athletes ask about their first contest because they've heard that pros only take twelve weeks. Well, pros have drugs, and usually naturals have to take six months. And my rule of thumb is, however long you think it's going to take you to get to your goal, double it. It'll take twice as long because there will be adaptations. The body things will slow down. The realities of lives, you're going to break your belt. Like, there are all these things. But people are like, okay, I'm going to lose 30 pounds in three months and then go right back to what I was doing before. And somehow it'll magically stay off. And they're going into it with such terrible ideas to begin with that it is just a recipe for failure. And I'm not saying that we can get 100% success by changing this. I'm saying it's sure not helping when people have these delusional ideas about how quickly, how much, and how easy it's going to be and that they'll be able to, it's like, no, some component of this, and maybe not all of it, will have to be permanent. And even that's like, that's tough, right? That's like the 30 year thing of training thing. That's really hard to psychologically deal with. So it's like, I, I, it's, let's think long-term. Let's think, how, you know, that's, oh, dieting should be about developing habits and this, and I don't disagree with any of that. Because it has to be. It has to be something that is at least partially sustainable. Now, that's not to say, well, that's a whole separate topic. I don't even bother getting into that because I talk too much as this. But yeah, some aspect of what you're doing has to be sustainable. Juice fasting is not sustainable. Fiber fasting is not sustainable. Permanent fasting is not sustainable. That doesn't mean it can't be useful. That doesn't mean that a couple days, you know, alternate day fasting or whatever doesn't have its role. But if you think you're never going to eat again, <laughs> not really sustainable. If you think you're going to live on cabbage soup, 
there is a cabbage soup diet in the US. That's not sustainable. If you look at the successful dieters, again, it's lots of lean protein, vegetables, central fatty acids, usually moderate carbs, moderate fats, because you are having to retrain eating habits with whole foods, right? Some research has even shown there are people that think of these are diet foods and these are non-diet foods. This is what I eat when I'm losing and then this is what I eat the rest of the time. That has to go bye-bye, right? Now, you don't have to necessarily stay with the exact diet you lost weight on to maintain, right? That's the other extreme. You're like, oh, if, if, if you're cutting all the carbs out of your diet, you're doing it wrong. Well, why? Who says? Maybe for some people, they need to do that to break uh, carb triggers or change their taste buds, which take about four to six weeks. Like, what is fundamentally wrong with doing it in the short term? The answer is nothing, because nothing, nothing about that says you can't bring them back in later right? You may not be eating any carbs now because that helps you retrain food habits. And there was a study last year that did exactly that. They took two groups on the same low-carb diet, and then one was allowed to bring carbs back in to what they called an acceptable level. And they ended up at about 150 grams per day. And they were much more successful because they were allowed to, to include some of the old foods in their diet, the key word being some. But they, had, they went low-carb, and the group that tried to stay low-carb wasn't sustainable. Right, so we've got these two extremes. We've got the extremes of I'm going to follow an approach that I, that's impossible to sustain. We've got the idea of oh, your diet that you lose on must be identical to what you're going to eat afterwards. Yeah. And then there's the happy middle ground, which is no, your fat loss diet should be based around certain things: whole foods, lean, blah 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 blah. But once you've reached your goal and can eat more, you can bring in certain foods under controlled conditions that you were eating before, so long as you maintain that base that you used for your diet, right? That's the middle ground. And I think most people have trouble conceptualizing that for, because they're at whichever extreme they're at, right? The general public is at the, I've got my diet, diet, and I want to go right back to the way I was eating. You got the hardcore fit spro thing where it's now currently trendy to make lots of extreme absolutist statements that are wrong. And I just like to, I just dump on everybody, right? Because I'm right in the middle. I'm just like, you're both wrong for different reasons, but you're still both wrong. Um, so we've got all, yeah. So yeah, it'd be great if you could go right back to eating the way you were beforehand. And that gets us back to the settling point. If you do that, you'll settle right back to where you started. Yeah. Yeah, and it's funny because, you know, I'm I'm not at all actually. I am actually one of those people that I would not call myself a naturally lean person. Like as a kid, I was not lean at all. Early mm -hmm. on in my fitness upbringing, I was not lean. And now if people look at my pictures kind of month to month, year to year, even at this point, I'm always kind of lean-ish. And sometimes I will go up in body fat and then I will bounce back to a leaner physique very quickly. And sure. many people will look at that and think that, well, you're kind of just not admitting that you're a naturally skinny person. But the thing is, is that I really am not. What I am is someone who became comfortable with the idea of maintaining certain eating habits and right. kind of forced myself almost to develop a liking to things like green veggies, low calorie yes. fruits, like strawberries, which are like candy to me at this point. And also accepted my culprit foods. Like I know that if I have peanut butter in the house, I will binge on them. No matter how proud <laughs> I am of my self-control and whatever, that I'm, I'm going to binge. And that's just the way it is. And I just learned to embrace the suck during dieting, basically. And that's my superpower. That is what allows me to be lean. 
Yes, and 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 probably what's happening. Uh, I knew a guy years ago, right? And this was his approach. And this goes back to the monitoring thing. He avoided becoming fat in the long term by he decided that his waist and he would do this with a belt would never go above a certain point, right? And whatever U.S. thirty two inches, and I couldn't begin to convert that to centimeters if I had to, but whatever. That's relatively lean without being super lean. And so if he put on that belt and he was starting to fill it out, he would tighten up his diet a little bit and tighten up his activity. And probably if you saw him, you know, he was fluctuating, right? Again, the settling point around some new, like he had dieted down to a certain level and he would fluctuate around that. And even that's another problem, right? People think of maintenance as I will maintain this exact body weight day in, day out forever. And that's not, that's not uh, realistic either. And I don't think anybody truly does that. First, you've got the day-to-day -day variations, which don't matter, right? Just think of it in terms of like weekly averages or whatever. You know, maintenance should be a range. And I, one paper I read, I think they said 3% of your current body weight. So, you know, if you've dieted to 70 kilos, 3% is 2 kilos, which is in American is about 4 pounds, right? So if you are edging back up and you hit 71 kilos and you're back at 72 kilos, well, you need to get it back together before it gets to be a problem. Because once you get back to 74 kilos and 76 kilos, you're going to go, oh God, I worked so hard to get there and now I've thrown it all away and you're going to give up. Whereas if you catch it early and catch it at, at the one or two kilo mark, and I'm sure this is where you're at, it's not even a big change. It's like, okay, I let it, I got a little sloppy for a couple of weeks. I was busy. I was listening to Wild, talk nonstop, whatever it was. And it's like, all right, I'm going to need to, you know, bump up the intensity, do a little more cardio, watch my food intake. And it takes you a matter of a couple of weeks to get back to where you started. Whereas if you let it slip too far, it's just too, too exhausting. I actually, uh, another paper I read a few years ago, because there's been a lot of interest in, you know, fasting and intermittent fasting, alternate day and whatever. And he wrote a paper that be he believed that complete fasting was the ultimate diet. Now, I don't mean long term, right? And realize that people carrying a lot of excess body fat can fast for, I mean, there's a case study, I'm sure you've seen it, guy, they gave him nothing but water and vitamins and minerals for 348 days or something ridiculous like that, right? And he lost like 80 kilos or something just stupid, but whatever, he didn't, you got enough body fat stored for a really long time when you're carrying that kind of body fat. But the researcher's premise was that, okay, you use complete fasting to lose some amount of fat and weight. And then when you've got people at maintenance, right, and they start regaining, one of the things that that fasting diet taught them is you can be hungry and it's okay, right? Anybody cannot eat for a day. Anybody cannot eat for a couple of three days. And usually you find that hunger doesn't even really hit till about day four of a diet. So it's like, okay, you fasted completely for a few weeks, maybe, and I wouldn't necessarily recommend that, but I'm just talking principles. The lesson you've learned is, okay, I can do this. If I feel like I'm starting to slip, I'll just not eat for a day. And again, I'm not necessarily recommending that, but like you, it's kind of going to what you say. You've learned that, okay, I can suffer for a little while. If I catch it early enough, I don't even have to suffer that long. Because the sooner you catch it, the sooner you're like, ah, I got to tighten it up for two weeks. I'll lose the kilo and a half that I gained, and I can go right back to maintenance. Um, one thing I've been sort of thinking about and talking about a little bit, and this is a whole separate podcast that I think people will briefly, is eating, I, I usually would say dieting, but just eating as a learning process, right? 
Another thing I dislike, let's face it, I dislike everything. People know me. I don't like anything. I don't like half of what I say most of the time. Like, I, it's not that I just don't dislike everybody else. Just whatever. I'm generally an irritable person. But we've got all these different diet cults, intermittent fasting, if it fits your macros, keto, paleo, this, that, the other. And they all say, I've got the one true approach. And I get why they do that, but I don't agree with it. Because on any given diet, one percentage of people succeeded wonderfully on it. Some people could take it or leave it, and some people failed. If there was a single best diet, we'd know what it was. We know the generalities. Calorie deficit, sufficient protein, central fatty acids, everything else is negotiable, depending on a bunch of different stuff. But people follow the magic diet, and it doesn't work for them, and they go, well, I suck, and I'm a failure. No, the diet wasn't right for you, or wasn't right for you right now. And every individual who is successful, you will find that they have gotten there through as many different approaches as you care to name. Some do low-carb, some do, you know, the keto games people, some like paleo, whatever, um, cyclical dieting, whatever it is, carb cycling, you name it, intermittent fasting, alternate day fasting, you name it, and somebody has made it work because they found an approach that was right for them, and that's the key. It may take some experimentation, right? You gave a perfect example, and I'm the same way. You learned the hard way, probably. And if you keep peanut butter in the house, a jar is a serving. I've learned that lesson too, altogether more times than I care to admit to, or that if I keep certain things in the house. Same thing, I've tried intermittent fasting over the years, on and off and on and off. And if I do it a very certain way, it works for me. But what I usually do is I won't eat till two o'clock, and then it'll be four o'clock, and then I'll be like, oh, I'm gonna wait to six o'clock, and then I go to the Chinese buffet and eat twice as much as I would have if I'd just eaten four meals a day. Now, if at four o'clock I have, you know, a reasonable sandwich and a glass of milk and I can make it work, but as often as not, it doesn't work for me. Now, I'm not saying intermittent fasting is bad. I'm not saying people that make intermittent fasting working or anything. It works for them. It doesn't work for me. So I don't use it by and large. What works for me is to generally have a spread meal pattern. I typically eat four meals a day, you know, and I eat the same thing, usually breakfast, lunch. My meals are pretty standard. I don't eat that a lot. But if I have cookies in the house, I eat them. If I have certain foods in the house, I eat them. I had to learn the heart. Like I said, if I want them, I go get them. And usually that keeps me from doing it. But that's a learning thing for any given individual. And you try a strategy and it works or it doesn't. If it works, you keep it. And if it doesn't work, maybe try it again. If it doesn't work, drop it. Right? I've been talking about this with flexible eating very a lot very recently because the flexible eating people have gotten just as irritating as the clean eating people. They have become just as much as zealots about it. They've become just as much of absolutists about it. They're now saying if you're not flexible eating, you have an eating disorder. Oh, screw you, right? Seriously, you, they are no better than anybody else now because what they forget is they spent 10 years being rigid eaters. They've spent 10 years meticulously tracking every piece of food they ate. Even when they are quote unquote not following their diet, they know everything they are eating. To tell someone without that background to follow flexible eating or if it fits your macros right off the bat is terrible advice. We know that overweight individuals, their brain has a different reward system. They are, they may not be as aware of of what they are eating at any given time. To tell them that immediately is terrible advice. To tell them that if they're not doing it, they're doing it wrong is even worse advice because it's telling them that I have the single best approach and if it doesn't work for you, you're the failure. This is not helping anything. For some, and, and, and for that person, maybe it's not right for you now, right? Taste buds change over many weeks. 
the brain is probably going to change in terms of the reward system. You take the average beginner, individual overweight, who's been eating a certain way for 20 years. And if you tell them, oh, you can have a cookie, and they do that, and they're going to eat the bag, and they're going to feel like failure. Well, try it, and if it doesn't work, it's not for you. Certainly adopt the attitudes of there are no good and bad foods. I'm, don't, I'm not morally impure for eating this. Maybe 12 weeks down the road you tried and it worked because you've established better habits. But people have to learn what combination and strategies for them is both effective for fat loss and effective for long-term maintenance. You've done that over however many years and of however many years of making mistakes because you've got to make the mistakes to learn from them, and that's fine. I've done it. I dare say if you talk to most people in this industry who've found a successful set of habits and patterns for them, it happened over a number of years. But what works for them may not work for any given. So there is a learning process to this that is something else that realistically people are going to have to accept. But once they find that pattern of habits for them, cool, because now they know what works for them, which is far more important than what works for some absolutist zealot uh, who's got you know, who, who thinks they have the one true approach. Um, and that's probably a good place for me to stop. Because <laughs> I can go on about that one forever because it really, like I said, that's, you know, and I did it too. My first book on flexible eating or uh, flexible dieting, I was probably a little more enthusiastic about it being right for everyone, certainly than I am now, because for some people it fails. You'll talk to physique competitors, and I forget who it was, somebody told me about it on a podcast. And for him, he prefers to diet rigidly, right? He's a clean eater the whole way through prep. And some of that's for him if he stops being rigid or clean eating, he it's a psychological switch that flips and he has trouble getting, and, and that's fine. But he also knows that that diet is for one day out of the year, right? He knows that this is to reach a specific goal and this is the 1% of physique competitors that is not representative of the average person. So for him, that approach gets him to stage. For the average person, we know with endless data that flexible attitudes are better than rigid attitudes. But he's a and he's learned through his own experience, that's what gets him to contest ready. And that's fantastic for him. And it doesn't say anything about anybody else. Yeah. So, um, yeah, you brought up a lot of points and I would actually love to dig into a lot of those because uh, I always enjoy your rants. But slowly I want to wrap this up because um, this is uh, I don't want to t turn this into an audio tome. Um, so I guess as a concluding remark, uh, maybe it's safe to close with uh, or conclude with the idea that, you know, when it comes to modifying your body fat settling point and maintaining a leaner physique, Try to manage your environment, try to create simple systems for yourself, which make it easier to burn more calories, eat less food, learn to manage things like volumetrics, um, social events, learn to quickly bounce back after you made a slip up. And once you kind of maxed out on all of those things, like once your diet is fairly satiating, has a high satiety index, fairly voluminous, and you're kind of at the end of energy expenditure consciously, which is kind of just within that point where it's not a full-time job, you know, if still at that point you're still struggling to maintain a lean physique, then maybe it has to come to a point of acceptance that, well, you know, maybe I can never maintain, I will never be able to maintain 8% body fat without feeling like it's a full-time job. But, you know, probably you can still, or maybe you can still maintain 11% body fat, and that still looks pretty darn good. And that's kind of an adult-like recognition that you have to come to. Um, would you agree with that closing thought? Oh, no, ab yes, ab ab absolutely. Or you can accept, you know, if you are just determined to stay at 8% for whatever reason, you are, you know, you have to decide if that 
is worth it to you? Is it worth being that meticulous and that stressed and that neurotic and never being able, for the most part, to be able to go out to eat with friends and being somewhat hungry all the time? Is it worth it to you to be 8% body fat? And that's an individual choice. But yeah, if you get there, like I said, I one of the times I dieted down to 8%, like I worked for months and did the thing. And so I tell people, I'm like, yeah, I think I stayed there for about two weeks. That's pretty good. Yeah, yeah, right. I know. I was like, I used my ultimate diet too, and it worked, and I got lean, and I looked great, and stayed there for about two weeks. And I said, most of the year, I'll stay 12 to 15% just based on habit and eating alone. And I was a chubby little kid. Uh, I was probably in you know the low 20s. But I was inactive. I was eating the standard middle-class American diet, which is white bread with lunch meat, cheese, mayonnaise spread, chips, uh, either pudding or cookies, juice. And over years, and it took years like it did for you, reprogrammed myself to, you know, eat more vegetables and salads and adapted, you know, taste buds to low, lower fat foods and all that stuff. And that's my general general habits. And those general habits will keep me lean enough. And if I want to get leaner, I got to suffer. And I'm at a point in my life where I don't have it anymore. I just, I'm old and tired. Like I know that sounds really defeatist, but I just don't care anymore. I'm not a competitive athlete. When I was an endurance cyclist or endurance skater, rather at five, seven, at one point I was 145 pounds and I was shredded because I needed to be for power to weight ratio. And I looked terrible. Like I looked absolutely you know, like I was starving to death because I was. And honestly, then I did the numbers. If I got into like 140, like 60, what is that? 66 kilos, I would have kicked so much ass in my sport because my power to weight ratio would have been right where it needed to be. I couldn't get there. I was training 12 to 15 hours a week between bike and skating and everything else. I couldn't do it. The hunger was just staggering. I could not control my appetite. I couldn't control my food. I, I that was where I, that was my limit. I, I could never get that last three to four pounds to you know. Not that it really mattered, but yeah. And that's where I stayed because I trained my absolute butt off, and now I don't. And I'm 185, and I'm much happier and healthier, and I get to eat, and I'm lean enough for where I want to be, and I don't compete in sport anymore. So you know, I kind of I kind of don't care. Um, you know, one last thing, something you mentioned before, you know, the neat aspect. Um, a lot of people may know I train uh, Sumi Singh. She's a powerlifter. She's my athlete. She stays lean all year round. Now, admittedly, she watches her food intake. She eats your typical athletic diet, but she gets 20,000 steps a day and sometimes more. For a 114-pound lifter, she eats about 20 calories a pound. Now, it's not much in absolute terms, right? She, she eats 2,200, 2,400 a day. But for a 114-pound person, that's a lot of food. It's not, and it's because her her neat is just staggering. Like realistically, at 185, I burn the same number. I burn 1,800 calories just sitting on my butt because I outweigh her by 60 pounds. And my but my activity is like damn near zero because it's in front of a computer all day. Um, so yeah, so like that's one of those things that it, you know you can compensate if you want to eat more food. You got to be more active. If you're little, it sucks. If you are a small female at 110 pounds. You don't get to eat a lot of food to begin with. And if you're dieted down and trying to maintain that, you get to even eat less food. Even a guy at under 65, right? When I was dieting to 8%, my activity was low. I think I was eating eight calories a pound. It was 1,400 calories a day. That's not a lot of food. And it sucked. But I did an hour low intensity cardio in the mornings. I sat in front of the computer, wasn't doing a lot of lifting. And, uh, but, you know, had I done more activity, I could have eaten more. And, and diet, because you hear about these guys, right? And they're like, ah, 
4,000 calories a day. And you're like, yeah, you're 180 pounds and you train 15 hours a week. And most people are not either of those things. <laughs> so yeah, so I, I agree with everything you said in your summary is if you get there and just can't sustain it, you either have to accept that you're not meant to do it or that you're going to be constantly suffering or you get appetite suppressants. Like drugs are always, drugs work better than anything. Yeah, well said. Um, all right, Lyle. Awesome. I really enjoyed this talk, and uh, maybe we can do a follow up on this at some point because you went on to a lot of rants, which I would love to follow follow up on. But um, we could sit here for three hours. So yeah, thank you so much for being on, and uh, just uh, yeah, let people know uh, everything that you have coming up and any kind of resources that you would like them to check out. As always, my website bodyrecomposition.com. I got like six hundred articles. I've just now started doing some short videos. To, to try to get some new stuff up there without being quite so tedious, uh, trying to keep them to 10 minutes. Um, my store has all my books, including the new one on birth control. Um, my Facebook group is really where you'll find me. Right now my forums are down because they're dead anyway. Uh, my Facebook group, super active. I'm there every day. We got tons of smart people who have expertise far outside of mine. I learn from them every day, so that's probably the best place to go. Not, I mean, I'm sort of half working on a lot of stuff. Um, I got a lot of ideas, but I just, man, the, the big book, the women's book for three and a half years took a lot out of me. Usually I take two or three years off after a book project like that. So trying to get back to some smaller writing projects and we'll just kind of see what happens. Awesome. Well, excited for all of that. And, um, yeah, keep up the great work. And once again, it was a pleasure chatting with you. Thanks, Abel. All right, guys, I hope you enjoyed this episode. And if you did, then please, once again, consider dropping a five-star rating on iTunes. It would mean a lot to me and it would be truly helpful. And if you're interested in more cool stuff, then you could visit my YouTube channel. If you type in Sustainable Self-Development Podcast there or even SSD Podcast, it will come up. And if you're interested in working together with me, then you can check out the Calendly link in the show description. There you can book a free call with me. We can hop on that call, chat about your goals, challenges, determine if we are a good fit. And if that is the case, then we could be working together going forward to get you to the results that you want. So that's all I had to say for today. I hope you enjoyed this once again. And with that, see you next time.